This is Creative Pursuits. We talk about art, communications, and technology on this podcast. My name is Alex Crow, and I guess I should start off by saying that the best investigators are the ones that become obsessed with their work. And today I am talking with just such a person. He is a New York Times bestselling author and an art crime investigator. His name is Anthony Amore, and his latest book, The Woman Who Stole Vermeer, is out now. So today, Anthony and I talk about his new book and its central character, Rose Dugdale, socialite to socialist, debutante to desperado, aristocrat to activist. All of those describe Rose. Rose is such an interesting person. She was born into the British aristocracy. She went on to study at Oxford before becoming a radical activist, taking up the cause of Irish republicanism against the British Empire. And her ingenuity and the lengths she went to for her cause are are truly staggering and, and fascinating. You know, Rose, she she conceived and perpetrated momentous art thefts, among other things. So we talk about Rose, we talk about his current case. He's been charged with solving the single largest property theft in world history, the Isabella Stort Gardner heist. We also talk about the Alter case. If you're not familiar with that one, stay tuned because it's it's a doozy. And Anthony also gives me his uh, unfettered opinion on Sears and clairvoyance and the role they play in solving mysteries. Uh, folks, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. We, we recently got an incredible rhyming review on Apple Podcasts. It's like an, an epic poem, Homeric, you could say. Uh, you can write your own Homeric review, or it can just be uh, simple prose, we are going to, uh, we're running a contest, so we're going to read the best review on a future episode of the podcast, and the winner, the winner, folks, is going to get a special prize. If you win, you can select your own prize from a host of options. They can all be seen on the goodies page of our website at creativepursuitspodcast.tv. Before we get to my conversation with Anthony, are you a uh, running a multimedia department or creative services team at your company? Are you a busy broadcaster managing news gathering or production for your network or station? Are you trying to staff your new remote comms or creative team? Well, if you've got work to do and you don't have the time to look for the extra people you need to get it done, or maybe you've got a new role to fill and you have no idea where to find the specialist, that you need. The good news is that your new creative uh, partner, your new recruiting partner should be team people. So team people have a deep bench of talented folks all over the country looking for their next challenge. They can find people from, from all over. Their superstar recruiters specialize in making great matches and they don't use any kind of algorithm-based app that just dumps a slew of resumes on you. It's a premium approach that vets the talent to your requirements, your culture, 
in your budget. From production mainstays like editors to the next-gen UI UX people you need to make your website work, team people can find your people. Give them a visit at teampeople.tv. Give them a call. They're also on Twitter at teampeopletv. Team People is building dynamic media teams. With that said, let's get to my conversation with Anthony Moray. I've been in field of investigations and security for uh, almost 30 years now. And it seems, someday you'll see, it seems weird saying that, but it's one day you wake up and you've been working for 30 years. And uh, for the first 15, I worked for federal agencies that are now considered part of the Department of Homeland Security. Okay. But there, there wasn't such a thing at first. So I worked for what used to be called the INS, which is now CBP. Um, and my plan was to break my career up into five-year increments. So I did five years there. And then I was a special agent for security at the FAA for five years. And uh, I left in February of 2001 and, uh, to do consulting. And then 9-11 hit. And uh, my business partner and I were asked to come back to the government to help. And we did. And that turned into working to rebuild security at Logan Airport after 9-11. Uh, Logan is the airport from which the two aircraft that struck the Twin Towers uh, departed. So it's a big job, and um, we're proud of the work we did there. Uh, but I, when I was finished with the missions that we had there, and there were many, I made this leap over to museum security. And it's, it is pretty incongruous, but the, the reason I made that leap is because the Gardner Museum in Boston, where I work now, was the one museum in the world I can think of that was looking for a person who could do security and investigations. Right. And that's what I did. And that's unusual, actually. Most investigators don't do security. So, so can I cut it? Because I, you know, you can always there, in. sorry, there's, I mean, there's so much to get into and, and, and we're going to, but I just kind of wanted to stop you right there. What was it that drew you to museums? Are you yourself an art lover? Have you always been an art lover? I'm sure you are to some degree. Now you're an appreciator, right? But mm -hmm. where do you fall? Where do you fall on that? It's a great question. I, uh, I grew up between two housing projects in Providence, Rhode Island. I didn't grow up in a environment that, um, that led people like me to go to art museums. Uh, it was just never on our radar, me yep. nor my friends or families. Uh, we didn't object to them, just never thought of it. And, uh, but I always loved art and I created art as a young man. Um, the Gardner Museum was a place I had never been to. I wasn't originally from Boston. I had heard about it and knew about the crime that was committed here, this major art theft in 1990. Uh, I came here for my interview. It was the first time I was in this place and I couldn't believe my eyes. It's just this absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous place you can only experience in person. And I was hooked. Uh, and then the idea of being able to get, get up and go from my desk and look at a Raphael in the middle of the day, pretty amazing. So um, I became an art, I, I was always an art lover but I became a museum lover from working here. 
It's, I mean, it, totally. It's amazing. The, the art that you have, right? I mean, you're sitting in your office right now at the Stark Gardner Museum. If you're listening to this just on the podcast, you can't see that, but there you are, Anthony, and you can walk out there and see these breathtaking works of art. So I guess you, you alluded to it already. I mean, you mentioned it. So you kind of have a, a two-pronged role at the uh, Stark Gardner Museum now, because one, you know, there's just the the museum security that every museum that houses these priceless works needs. But there was also uh, an historic art heist that took place at that museum, right? Unfortunately, yes. In 1990, uh, the world's biggest property theft took place here. And uh, thieves posed as police officers and talked their way in overnight uh, and tied up the guards, the two guards, and uh, spent about an hour and a half in here taking 13 pieces that are valued well over half a billion dollars. Um, just some of the world's greatest masterpieces by Vermeer and Rembrandt and Degas and Manet. Um, so the museum uniquely uh, from day one became fully engaged in trying to get their paintings back, right. our paintings back. Um, from posting a million dollar award that jumped up to five million, that is now 10 million, to employing investigators uh, uh, leading up to me. So, for I had planned to be here five years, I've been here 15 yeah. since we haven't recovered the art yet. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's just an unbelievable experience to be part of. Well, as, as an investigator, I'm sure that, I mean, I, I, Obviously, this, it's, it's a terrible crime that was committed, but there must be a little bit of a adrenaline in that kind of, I don't even know what it is, but that, did, I mean, you, you, I, this is just my experience watching TV shows, but the detective always gets that like obsessive, that obsessive kind of um, instinct. The detective wants to solve the case. Is that how you almost, do you have that kind of relationship with this case? I mean, do you feel that kind of personal attachment to it? Without a doubt, um, the best investigators are the ones that become obsessed. I mean, if you're not obsessed with it, um, I don't know how you solve it. Uh, that being said, I'm obsessed and haven't solved it. I haven't gotten the paintings back. But yeah. um, your listeners might not know that in our museum here in Boston, the, the frames, the empty frames that held the stolen art uh, still hang on the walls as reminders to the visitors of what belongs there because our, our museum is unique in that nothing can ever be changed. We can't move paintings. We can't add or subtract paintings. Yeah. Um, everything's exactly as Mrs. Godner left it when she passed in 1924. Oh. Um, that's not why the frames are up though. The frames are up because we want people to remember that the Rembrandt's only known seascape was here and yeah. it should be here and it will return. Yeah. Uh, and um, so you have these reminders of your mission every time you walk through the museum. So that adds to that obsession. Totally. So that that normal five year increment that you're accustomed to is now stretched out to to 15. And and uh, we'll we'll see what happens, I guess. I, I kind of now that you have spent all this time around the art and you clearly I mean, the woman who stole Vermeer, we're, we're going to get to this. I I. I finished the book a few days ago. I breezed through it. It was such a great read, such a great book. But I understand that you have developed uh, a real appreciation for these arts, for, for art and these artists. 
um, and so we, the book concerns a few Vermeers. There is a Vermeer that was taken from the Stort Gardner Museum. In your own words, what, what make, to you, what makes Vermeer so special? Such a, such a crucial point. Vermeer, I often compare to Leonardo da Vinci, where they produced about the same number of paintings, all of them super valuable, all of them highly desired. Vermeer's paintings, each of the 36 known works, if you look at it, you can look at it for your whole life and never answer questions that are posed by the paintings. They, they're mysterious. Yeah. Just like Leonardo. And the analogy I often give is two of the most mysterious portraits ever painted were by those two artists, right? For no reason other than their greatness. So the Mona Lisa has yeah. kept, led people to just wonder about her for centuries. Yeah. Similarly, the girl with the pearl earring, yeah. um, you just look at it and wonder who she is and what she's thinking and what's the scenario. I love Vermeer because all of his paintings have that element. And um, the two that are in the book, and we can talk about them if you like, both pose questions that I write about in the book mm. that only the viewer can come up with the answers and never know for sure if they're right. Yeah, they have that, that there's almost like a supernatural quality to them. True. Who, who is the, the, the girl with the pearl earring? Well, in that film, it was Scarlett Johansson, but yeah, like we'll never, we'll never know. There's, there's not a lot of documentation from, from his time. I was reading about Vermeer. We don't even know like which master he, he studied under. So there's so much in the book. You talk about the Vermeers, you provide an insight into this woman, Rose Dugdale. There's incredible historical context. I learned so much about the troubles, which I wasn't so familiar with, even though uh, I, I, I have ancestry that goes back to, to Northern Ireland myself before the troubles started a few decades before, but there's just so much in the book. I mean, people, there's everything in it. Someone's going to say, well, uh, is there a clairvoyant? And <laughs> the answer is, the answer is yes. Now, um, just in the pandemic, I've actually really gotten into, I mean, pretty much the whole story takes place in, in the UK, um, in, in England and in Ireland. I've gotten into some fiction writers. Two of my favorite fiction writers are actually Irish, Sally Rooney and Nisha Dolan. So they have kind of, they have socialist leanings mm -hmm. uh, politically. They've, they've made it known, it's, it's, it's in their writing. I know from my investigative deep dive into you, Anthony, that you, you wouldn't necessarily fall in the anarcho-communist end of the spectrum. Um, Say the least. Yes, that's true. But, and and you've, you wrote books on some of the greatest forgeries and fakes in art. Your other book was on some of the greatest art heists. This is the first time you took a singular, a singular person. I mean, something must have, something really magnetic must have drawn you to Rose. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you kind of give us some background into Rose and what it was that drew you to her and wanted to tell this story? Sure. Um, well, you know, it's hard to pin down what Rose's politics are 
Um, sometimes she's described as a Marxist. Um, I don't know if that captures her perfectly. And although, like you alluded to, I, that's probably the last thing you would describe me personally as, I do have a lot of respect for people who study political philosophy and people who are committed to their cause, even if I don't agree with it. Um, Rose attracted me because she's an outlier. And by that, I mean, I've looked at well over a thousand art heists now, um, and I catalog them. And when people ask me, has a woman ever stolen art? I always say, well, yes, there is this one I've been saying for years, there's this woman, Rose Dugdale. And anything I would ever look at her, anytime I would ever look at her, um, even more than a cursory look, you'd find contradictions about what reporters would say about her or academics would say about her. Um, so finally, I said, you know, I want to know more about her. You know, what, what was her real motive? And when I started studying her life much more closely, I found she lived a remarkable life from start to finish. And she's one of these people who everything about her was, you know, the first person to blank, the first right. person to, and, and those blanks would be filled in with remarkable insane things like that. May, I always say when, when people ask me about my latest book, I tell them it is a great book. It's not a great book because I wrote it. It's a great book because she lived it. Yeah. And um, that's how I recommend it. It's not about me. It's about Rose Dugdale. So she's a fascinating character. Um, and when people read it, I think they will undeniably agree with me that you just can't believe the life this woman led. So you've developed this incredible, you're, you're around these works of art, you've developed a real interest in art, you, you know, you've become, uh, to some extent, a, a Vermeer historian at the very least. Uh, but you said you didn't necessarily come from the kind of, you didn't grow up around art, but, but Rose, what, can you just kind of talk about her background, like how she sure. kind of became the Rose Dugdale that is, is the infamous Although still kind of, um, she, she doesn't, she doesn't enjoy the kind of notoriety that maybe she, she should, but can you just right. kind of talk about her background and kind of what makes that so special? Absolutely. Her background is incongruous to where she led up. She was born as what she would probably call nowadays a one percenter. She was born into enormous wealth and, um, rejected it later in her life. But not at the beginning. She attended the finest private schools. She grew up uh, at a place in Devon, in Great Britain, uh, called Yardy Farm, which is rolling hills and remarkable home and every luxury and enjoyment that a child could want. Right. Um, later, uh, when she was 18, it was time for her to be a, a debutante, to be presented before the queen. And of course, in Rose Dugdale fashion, not only didn't she want to, but um, it was the last time that debutantes would be presented before the queen. So the class of 1958 is a noteworthy debutante class because the last one to go before Queen Elizabeth II. So there's a book written about people in that class, uh, Last Curtsy. Um, so because she didn't want to do it, and it takes you back, I love these period pieces, so it's 1950s, 
to get her parents to acquiesce to her demands to go to Oxford, she says she'll be a debutante. It's a deal she strikes. And it's hard for someone in 2020, 2021 to think that, you mean to tell me, I have two daughters. If my daughter wants to go to Oxford, there wouldn't be a big argument about it. I would be more than happy for her to go. Right. Back then it was, I'll do this if you let me go to Oxford. And that's yeah. this incongruous way her life began. It was just, and it just gets stranger from there on out. They, they didn't feel like it was her place to be going to, to higher education. No, a woman of her upbringing and her, her breeding would be, uh, would find a husband, a wealthy husband of her right. class right. and live a life of luxury and of, you know, doing the things that she was expected to do. She saw going as a debutante where she should have meant her husband as a meat market. And right. these were not the types of men she would ever want to be around. Don't be mistaken, though. At that point, she still hadn't become a revolutionary. She just wanted to go to school. So No, to the contrary, in your book, she shows up at Oxford and, and her schoolmates, their contemporaneous reporting is that she actually held conservative views when she first arrived, right? Absolutely, yes. And then when she left Oxford, she came to the United States which is probably her least favorite country on the planet right now. And she um, had all the trappings of a rich young woman. Her parents even sent over her sports car so she could zip around the country. She, she went from coast to coast. She dressed in cowboy hats and boots and lived the American lifestyle. I mean, there was no denying, she didn't make any attempt to deny her upbringing at this point. She found herself in Cuba at one at one point, and that's kind of, I guess where her radicalization began, would you say? Sure. Well, yes, uh, I think that's where it was met its, its summit, her education as a revolutionary. So the 1960s, it can never be overstated. It's almost cliche now to say it's a time of change, Right. Um, but it was, and she becomes a professor. She gets her PhD back in England. She becomes a professor and the classroom is becoming a activist place. And as we get to the later 60s, there are protests around the Western world in Paris, in, in the United States, of course, and in Great Britain, and there are sit-ins in universities, and she takes part in them, even though, even as an academic. 1968, she takes the opportunity to go with, again, a noteworthy class. In 1968, the students from the West were invited by Castro to go to Cuba and study his, his society after his revolution. And she goes with noteworthy uh, young people. But it's interesting, Alex, that she's about six years older than most of the rest. So most of them are college seniors and in recent grads. She's 28 year old PhD. Right. Um, and uh, I think you'd agree that there's a, there's a much bigger difference between a 28 year old and a 22 year old. Yep than there is between say a 58 and a 52 year old. I mean, a hundred percent. Absolutely. Right. When you're 22, your brain is just finished growing. Yep. Uh, 28, you're in the real world. So she goes to Cuba and not every, not every one of the students fell in love with it. She did. And she fell in love with what Castro had done of note. Christopher Hitchens was there and he didn't speak as well of it as, as she did, no. but that completed her, that, that set her on the course for what she would become. So when she comes back to Great Britain, right. 
1969, it's a really pivotal year as well, because in 1969, the Irish Civil Rights Movement starts. Yep. And she, even though she's still in Great Britain and fighting for the rights of the working class, she puts up not a banner, but a storefront sign that covers her entire front of her store of the Irish tricolor, um, really making a statement in Great Britain at the time, you yeah. know, that she's on the side of the Irish. Uh, and she becomes consumed. First, she starts running guns to Ireland with her boyfriend, and she becomes consumed with Irish republicanism. Right. She links up with the IRA. And the book, I really can't stress this enough, the book is so rich in detail. So we're just kind of like getting the broad strokes here. And I appreciate I appreciate we, you talking about Rose because I definitely want to, her, her story is so interesting. And I, and I hope that everyone reads the book because it's, it is such a great tale. So she, she links up with the, she's drawn to the Irish Republicans. They're the people that she sees uh, where she grew up in England uh, as the, as the marginalized, the marginalized people that she wants to, um, to, to, to fight for. Mm-hmm. And like you said, she, she gets into gun running at one point. I can't remember if this was for, so we're going to, she, she gets into these art heists, but early on in her rev- revolutionary activities, she ends up getting arrested and she, she gets before, she goes before the judge and, and she almost, it seems like she wants to be punished. She wants to be able to make this, she wants to show that she's, she's really in it. And like a, a stiff prison sentence shows that, you know, you really are all in for the cause. Uh, but, but the judge did not acquiesce, did he? No, and it's another pivotal moment. So she, she gets arrested with her boyfriend, Walter Heaton, um, for Rose was uh, spending money like it was going out of style and she needed more. So she went to her family's estate while they were away and she and Walter and another guy stole a bunch of art from the family and antiques uh, they were quickly caught and arrested. Um, they were the easy suspects. And they used the courtroom, Walter and Rose, used the courtroom in the fashion of the Black Panthers. It was something they learned from them. Um, they learned that you can use it as your bully pulpit because the media would be there and you can make a statement for the record. And Walter's statement was about himself saying, uh, when he was convicted in, in sentences six years, saying not since Christ has there been such a travesty of justice, you know, right. this self-inflated uh, ego. Um, Walter's a, an interesting guy. He's a, he's a good, he's a good guy. Um, but he had been to jail before. He knew there was no party. Rose got up and spoke about her beliefs and her father was there. Her parents were always by her side. And, uh, she said, I love you, daddy, but I hate everything you stand for. Because what you're looking at is you mentioned that, you know, she falls in love with Irish Republicanism. The very people that the Republicans were fighting against were Rose's people. Yeah. The very class of people. Yeah. And she was rejecting this self-consciously, but, but um, authentically. And uh, she thinks she's going to jail too, but the judge in what I called a, a historic um, show of bad judgment, 
says that he thinks that she'll never offend again, that she was under the influence of her boyfriend. He gives her a suspended sentence. And so now Walter's gone. She, he's in prison, and she says she's going to stand by him. But just in a matter of weeks, she leaves and just disappears on Walter without notice, never to see him again, which is just a remarkable. And if hopefully your listeners read the book, they'll, they'll see, boy, they had, su- they had such a close relationship. They lived together as husband and wife in his home, and he was married. Uh, and his wife was there. Right. And then she just leaves him and goes to Ireland and immediately takes up with a, a rogue Irish Republican, an IRA member. Right. And she, she, she got back to her, her quest, you know? She, she right. was questing. Um, and so I guess the next thing I kind of want to talk about, her getting that suspended sentence is just kind of emblematic of the sexism that she faced during the day not just in the in the legal system, but also in the media. I mean, a lot of people would write her off and basically say that all of her criminal accomplishments were, you know, they wouldn't give, they basically assumed that it was her, her beau or her significant other at the time who was behind them. And she was just what a, 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 an astray rich girl. I mean, what, what can you speak to that? Sure. It's really a great view of feminism at the time and the way people viewed women. So when she is given a suspended sentence, she's outraged and she says, this is pure class judgment. And it was, I mean, if she was of the same social standing as Walter, she would have went to jail. One of the biggest reasons the judge let her slide is because she was a rich girl. Right. Fine upbringing. Um, couldn't, so, so the only explanation could be that she was under Walter's spell. Right? And she didn't even make a point of the, the um, chauvinistic view, sexist view. But the, po- the fact is, and Walter will tell you this today, is that he was under her spell. But that was inconceivable in 1974 to think that this well-bred... She was the shot caller. Yeah, right. That this well-bred Oxford educated... When she was arrested, it made worldwide news. It was Dr. Bridget Rose Dugdale, Oxford-educated philosophers. Right. Uh, no one could believe that it was, you know, she had to be under Walter's spell. And that's one of my favorite parts of the book is proving, no, these men were under her spell. And it's just only a story that could be told after the fact because no one would believe that in 1974. She was a mastermind. She pulled off. She pulled off two heists of Vermeer's. I make the argument in the book, uh, one of the, there was a Vermeer theft um, in February of 1974 before her major one in April. Right. And I make the case in the book using circumstantial but overwhelming evidence that she had to be behind the previous one too. So a woman pulling off an art theft, incredibly unusual. A woman, a woman stealing a Vermeer unprecedented. A woman having done three art heists, including two Vermeers, staggeringly improbable, but yeah. true. So is the, it was the guitar player that she took from the from Kenwood? Kenwood, most likely, yeah. And then it was woman write, writing a letter with her maid. That's the confirmed one from the, from the Respiro from the house. house. Yeah, yeah. You got to read the book. The book's incredible. 
while I have you here, I want to talk to you about one of my, well, I guess, no, before, before we get to that, I'm really excited. So while we're on the subject of stolen art, I want to get your thoughts on this because it is so interesting art, stolen art as a fungible asset is not exactly the, the easiest. I mean, this thing has more intricacies than, than cryptocurrency. How, if you are in possession of stolen art, I mean, how, what do you even, what do you even do with it? I mean, people know that this thing exists. It's a remarkably difficult thing uh, what to do with stolen art. So the first step to that, and over my shoulder here, is a book I wrote about this topic called Stealing Rembrandts. And what you learn is that um, it's multi-layered. So number one thing your listeners should do is understand that what they see in the movies about stolen art is completely false. It's much more interesting in the real world. It's much more Coen Brothers than it is Thomas Crown Affair. Okay, so... Yeah. And that's what I think makes it more interesting. And if you are an art thief, and please don't be one, it's a bad thing to be, but if you are an art thief and you steal paintings from your local gallery, you might be able to fence those because they're not highly recognizable. They're not that valuable. Um, a lot of times people who rob that sort of stuff uh, might need drug money and that sort of thing. Um, they don't get sold for a lot of money, but you can sell them. Um, that even goes all the way up to, say, like a Hudson River Valley artist. Those paintings are very valuable, but you can't really name those artists off the top of your head. Right. They're mostly landscapes, so you're not, you're not going to, they're not as recognizable. They're beautiful and great creations, but they're different from if you steal a Vermeer. So if you steal a Vermeer, what you're doing is stealing a painting in modern day that's worth around $100 million, right? and is remarkably highly recognizable, right? So if you steal a Vermeer, it's gonna be front page news. Yeah. If you steal a Picasso, it's gonna be a huge story. If you steal a Rembrandt, it's gonna be front page news, right? So instantly, especially in the internet age, that painting is gonna, everyone's gonna see that painting, right? It's gonna be blasted all over the, the, the uh, internet. What you have now is something that is too highly recognizable to sell because anybody who'd be in the market for it's going to know that's the stolen one even if they had the proclivity to buy something that's stolen it's going even for pennies on the dollar you're still talking about millions of dollars and there just isn't a market out there of people who have that much money who are willing to risk going to jail for something they can never show anybody they'll just buy their own yeah yeah to take it and then put it in your bedroom where you can only see it when you've entered the room. Now, I don't know if you know where I'm, I'm heading next, but so since, since I have you here two years ago, I read this sensational, uh, almost unbelievable story about a Willem de Kooning painting that had been missing for, I think 30, 30, 35 years since like 1985. So like 33 years, I guess. And it was found in the oddest, 
in the oddest place. Are you are are you familiar enough with the story where you can kind of recount what happened, or I I, I can do it. But I'd love I'd love I'd love for you to I'd love for you to take it. Okay, and you could fill in if I. So what happened was this couple was it was just around Thanksgiving, um, went to the museum at the University of Arizona. Thanksgiving '85, yeah. Yep, and they get to the museum and they use a ruse. Um, they go to the museum just before opening. The employees are opening the doors to let other employees in. It's just a couple of minutes before opening, so they, they the employees let the couple in, man, uh, man and his wife. Now the museum's open. The guard is coming up to the second second floor. Uh, they walk up the stairs with him. The wife stops him and asks him some questions while the husband keeps going. A minute or two later, the husband comes back down the stairs and the couple leave. And it turns out that when the husband was upstairs, he cut the de Kooning painting out of its frame, rolled it up, put it under his coat, and they left. And the painting was never seen again. Then uh, their last name was the Alters, A-L-T-E-R, yeah. uh, Alter, last name. Right. Um, the wife, Rita Alter, survives her husband. So he passes away. She's alive. Then she passes away. And an estate sale company comes and they decide to buy everything in the house, including a painting that's in their bedroom. The estate sale company has an antique store. He, he puts the painting up on an easel. People are really interested in it. They don't know where it is. He researches it and he finds it's the stolen de Kooning worth $100 million dollars taken from the University of Arizona. Right. The rare good guy who just gives it back. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that this couple stole the painting. Uh, it's just so rare because it does seem that they, they did it for some sort of thrill and they put it in their home. They, they damaged it a bit by putting it on its own stretcher and trying to do their own work on it. But right. it's, in, it's being worked on right now. Yeah. They're going to yep. actually put it, they, they were supposed to start, it was supposed to be open for viewing this this past summer at the Getty Museum. I was yep. going to go see it, uh, I mean, because that's in my my neck of the woods. And, and, and another interesting note, just to what we were talking about earlier with these, these priceless works of art by these, you know, these legendary painters, you know, reading about the altars, once this, once this, this person came and bought it, bought the painting at the estate sale and he put it up like in his pawn shop or whatever. I read, I read an account from him basically saying that on the first day, people, and this is, this is on the, on the first day, people were walking by and being like, I think this, I think this is a real de Kooning, like multiple people without, you know, probably without even consulting the internet, just walking by it or like, this is a real, this is a real de Kooning. But what a, what a crazy what a crazy story. So you think unequivocally that they, that they did it. They just decided to go for a thrill and then, and then they just went back to their quiet lives as, as school teachers. I do. I think um, that again, circumstantial evidence is overwhelming in that case because they happened to, they lived in New Mexico, right? They happened to have actually been in Arizona for a family Thanksgiving at the time of the theft. Right. There's pictures to prove it. I saw the picture. They had it in their home. They meet the description of the people. They had a car like the getaway car. Um, it's just a really crazy story, but it's, those are so few and far between. I'd love to delve into that. 
uh, it was interesting to me as well because a woman was involved. Yeah. But what Rita Alter did is different from what Rose Dugdale did. So Rita was part of this thrill heist, I think it was. And she, um, oh, interestingly about that case, Alex, is I spoke to the FBI and they can't give details, but nobody's investigating the case. And that tells you. It's solved. They, they know it was, they had to be the alters. Um, Rose Dugdale was the impetus behind the Rustborough House heist. She did it for a political reason. She led the heist. She led the men into the house. She was the only one of the group that could have picked out the paintings to steal. This was her plan. This was her theft. It's different than Rita Alter coming and being the, the decoy for her husband to go steal a painting upstairs. Right. So that's why I can say Rose is the only one to do this. Yeah. But the Alter case is fascinating to me. First of all, it's a real lesson about great art. So de Kooning painted these abstract works. And your listeners can Google this painting. The Woman Ochre. Woman Ochre, thank you. And see it. And it's an interesting thing, you know, because a lot of people look at these abstract works and think, oh, that's garbage and I could do that and this and that. But it's something to consider that when it was in the, on that easel, like you so well uh, described it, people would come in and say, you know, that's something. Yeah. Even the people that didn't think de Koenig, they realized they were looking at something special. Supernatural. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. realized that this was not just something that some college kid put together. This yeah. was something different. Um, and that, that's something to say about art. It really is. It really is. Well, okay. I'm glad I was able to get you to, to weigh on, on that one. Uh, it is just such a, such a compelling case. I will say just like the last thought that pumpkin pie in that 1985 Thanksgiving photo of the altar couple <laughs> looks really good. It might be sweet potato pie. I'm not, I would have to call him like a real expert, but um, just that's my final, my final thought on that. I guess I'm just curious to get your, your thoughts because I don't think you editorialized too much, but at the, at, towards the end of the book, they're talking about I think it was the Rustboro art, art heist and it's suggested, or I mean, you say that MI5 might have been privy to the fact that this crime was being perpetrated and perpetrated by Rose, but they did not act uh, while the crime was being carried out because they thought that she was going to lead them to, you know, people uh, higher up in the IRA hierarchy. That's what do you suspicion. think? There's a suspicion there that when Rose and, and when people read the book, they'll see this amazing story about an aerial attack that she masterminded as well. Right. First aerial attack on the UK since World War II. The police were after her and there's suspicion that special branch officers were following her and knew what she had done. Um, but they were looking for her to lead them to a bigger, say, gun running operation or what have you, because she had started running guns to the IRA back when she was in England. So there's a suspicion that they might have been on to her, um, especially with the Kenwood House theft, because that's the one that happened just before the Rustboro House. So the Kenwood House, the guitar player by Vermeer was stolen six weeks before the Rustboro House Vermeer was stolen. And that painting... That crime was never solved, and that painting turns up in a cemetery that the police say 
they were led there by a psychic named Nella Jones. Right. And I, in my own work looking for the Gardner paintings, I can tell you I've spoken to way too many psychics. <laughs> they've all called me about where the Gardner paintings are, and every call to a person was preposterous. Wait, okay, all right, sorry. So, no, okay. so you you are regularly called. So this isn't like when I read that I was I was thinking, man, Rose is such a great, uh, such a great character, and there are a lot of her her kind of revolutionary politics. I mean, you're seeing more and more of this out there in the mainstream. I mean, more and more people are, you know, socialism is taking off in the United States in a way that it hasn't since probably the late 60s, 70s. Uh, just to name a few things, I'm thinking this thing is a, is ripe for an HBO miniseries, uh, particularly, so I don't know how those negotiations negotiations are going, particularly though, when the when the clairvoyant came in, because I just saw that that Stephen King HBO miniseries, The Outsider. Did you see that one? No, I didn't. Well, they have a clairvoyant in in, in that. Um, okay, so how are the HBO negotiations going? Uh, well, it's not HBO. We're talking to. Um, uh, I'm represented by UTA United Talent, and they there are directors and producers who are talking to us about turning the book into a either a limited series or a movie. Yeah. And um, again, not. Oh, yeah. because not because of any great skill of mine, Rose is just a remarkable story. And um, yeah, you know, I'm glad you, you mentioned the clairvoyant because it's just such an odd element. And I, I, my personal guess without ascribing any bad intent on the police part is that the woman in it might've been used as the cover as to how they got this painting back. I suspect, my suspicion is that perhaps Rose somehow, because of Rose's involvement, they were able to get that other Vermeer back and ascribe it to Nella Jones, the Interesting. psychic. Because I, I, as I mentioned, I've been approached by so many psychics. Um, okay, they, okay. Please, they please, yeah, please delve, please delve into, into that a little bit. You More psychics than you can count, than I can count. Um, any famous psychic you've heard of, they've all contacted me with their stories about who took the paintings. They're they all, just call you? They just call you oh, up and... Call me and email me and, and uh, it's absurd. If you ever believed in psychics, you'll stop believing if you could read my, my, my files. Um, it's just uh, a combination of people who are misled mentally or charlatans. And, um, so I don't believe that Nella Jones could possibly have been the way that the police found that stolen Vermeer. Right, right on. Uh, well, Anthony, I think that's pretty much it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, having this conversation with me. Alex, I can't thank you enough for having me. And I particularly want to thank you for having read the book. My pleasure, my pleasure. Well, it was my pleasure. That's it for my conversation with Anthony Amore. The book is... The Woman Who Stole Vermeer. I really can't recommend it enough. Check out the book. Rose is such a compelling figure. And also be on the lookout for the HBO miniseries. Or maybe it's going to be a, a Netflix or Hulu miniseries. Uh, it could be a movie that is simultaneously released in theaters and on HBO Max. So no one knows what the future is going to hold. I want to thank Hideout Hill for providing the music for this podcast for this episode you can check 
them out at Hideout Hill. I want to thank Anthony Amore for appearing on the podcast. I want to thank our sponsor team people. If you're looking to staff your own creative team or if you're a creative looking for work, definitely go to teampeople.tv and check them out. I think that's all I got for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being here. Oh yeah, don't forget to get it get it on this contest. Write a review and submit your own epic poem. You can have your own, uh, you can pen your own Homeric review for Apple Podcasts. And uh, I look I look forward to to reading a review or multiple reviews on the on the podcast in the near future. Thank you again so much for listening. This has been Creative Pursuits. See you next time.